Today is the 30th of September, 2014, and this is episode 149. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Passing 400 on the way up seems like a glorious moment, whereas passing 400 on the way down is disconcerting. You know, there's there's a difference in that quality. I mean, just a year ago, it was almost exactly a year ago that I started writing some of the first chapters of my book, and I had some examples in there that were denominating Bitcoin in dollars. And I used the most common price reference at the time, which was $100 per Bitcoin. And I went back and I was reading some of that now and realizing it was just a year ago that it was at 100. And it was you know, poised still, to go still, up to 1,000 in a few short weeks after that. It was, but at the same time, it was a long, grueling run-up to 100 and it had also bounced up to to about 200 260 and then and then dumped again and those prices seemed heroic at the time 400 was unthinkably high i remember having a party at my house for bitcoin 250 that party ended up getting delayed by two weeks at which point we were at bitcoin 400 (laughs) and it was a glorious and riotous time and now we're above bitcoin 400 but coming at it from the other end and it feels, uh, you know, very upsetting, but practically it's not that different. I think the difference, of course, is that we briefly glimpsed um, highs of between 1,000 and 1,200, depending on which market you were looking at. So that's why it feels very different. I guess you'd be most worried about the price if you were wanting to sell or use Bitcoins now. But if you're in it for the long term, then those price fluctuations don't necessarily bother you, but not everyone can sort of afford that luxury to treat their Bitcoin like an IRA. Well, no, I think also if you're buying and selling Bitcoin all the time, then it doesn't really matter because it averages out. If it's on a daily basis or on a regular basis, then, you know, you're buying cheaper as well as selling cheaper. So it doesn't matter. But if you if you bought the Bitcoin a while ago, especially if you bought it in late November after the big run up and now you want to spend it, That's going to hurt. You're looking at a significant reduction. So for people who came in during the very large run-up in November of last year, this must be extremely painful to watch. Um, For people who have been around since the single-digit dollar prices of Bitcoin, it doesn't really matter that much. I I count myself in that category. I mean, it's it's annoying, I guess, but I I try to remind myself that it's, it's not reflective of what's actually happening in the Bitcoin space. And what's actually happening is a ton of adoption, a ton of innovation, a ton of startups, growing momentum in in every aspect. Well, there's an interesting psychological thing where we saw this price, you know, the the all-time high currently, as we're recording this, was about $1,200. And what we know now from the Willie report, which we covered on the show, is that that price was basically fake. That was, you know, determined by some bots on Mt. Gox and like a lot of manipulation. But yet people have this idea in their mind that my Bitcoin should be worth $1,000. They can't get threshold down. Like uh, people have this idea in their heads. I've heard a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to sell any Bitcoins and sits for $1,000 or more. 
Why is it so hard to adjust down versus adjusting up? There have been、uh, psychological studies in this particular area that that people overestimate loss and underestimate gain. That's more painful to lose. Yeah, they're averse to risk on the way down far more than they are appreciative of gain on the way up. And there's also a lot of research in the psychology of price anchors and anchor points, and whether that's when you're negotiating. Um, you know, if you are negotiating and you open your mouth first during a negotiation and set a price, no matter what, that will create an anchor in the negotiation, and it will be difficult to depart from that price once you've set it. This is part of the fact that you know we're not really a hundred percent rational actors acting in a clean supply and demand.、Um, Marketplace where we make rational decisions without emotional impact, and that's simply not true. So emotion has a lot to do with this, and people feel much worse when it's going down than when it's going up. And we tend to assign value to the market. I think、uh, I do that too. It's it's a really bad habit because it can be upsetting at times like this to think, well, you know, is this is this industry worth twenty percent less than it was a month ago? And it it obviously isn't because good things have happened since, and the momentum of development continues. But if it kind of feels like it, even those of us who are very deeply embedded in this community and are working, getting paid in Bitcoin, spending a lot of our money in Bitcoin, it's it's still hard to denominate prices in Bitcoin entirely. Eventually. Yes, I think that will be the case, and it's easier and easier to forget the price of Bitcoin if you're working entirely in Bitcoin、uh, to forget the U.S. dollar exchange rate of the of the Bitcoin. But it's it's going to take a while until that becomes irrelevant, if it ever becomes irrelevant. Do you guys basically adjust your spending behavior? Like, so I have certain jobs or gigs where we get paid in Bitcoin. Do you not spend Bitcoin because of the price? Does it adjust your saving versus spending behavior? Not really, not for me. I if I need to buy things, I'm I'm buying them. I I think I save a lot more, and、um, I'm more frugal because it's hard for me to take my Bitcoin and convert it into dollars. I keep a lot of it offline. It takes a while to convert back to dollars. Which makes it harder for me to do impulse buys. So I have to think about something, and usually after I think about something for a day, I realize I don't really need it, and <laughs> so I'm much more fr- I'm much more frugal. That's actually a great point, Andreas. I mean, you realize how much friction affects、um, payments and the psychology of buying. I'm aware that if I need to, let's say, boot up Armory or take some bitcoins out of a cold storage wallet or something like that, in order to be able to buy something, I do think about it longer. I think, well, do I really want to do this? It's almost as if that extra work of getting access to the bitcoins is <laughs> like an additional cost that's almost outweighing like the actual value of what I'm going to be spending. So、um, yeah, it really does make you think twice. And same thing with micropayments. I mean, this is the whole reason why people download movies and music, and or one of the reasons anyway. Often, it's just so much easier to get something from a torrent to go through, through the credit card information and pay two dollars or whatever for the book. And you could just grab it off of a torrent, and it's way easier. Friction really does affect people's buying habits, and so does being able to get into your own wallet. <laughs> 
CryptoKit, I think, is kind of the inverse of Armory. When on one of my computers, I load up the wallet with it, that I, I spend it a lot faster than I do if I have to go to all the trouble of getting out my credit card. And like, you know, for small things like uh, Humble Bundle is a good example of this. Like I only spend Bitcoin there because it's not worth it to me to get out my credit card. But you're totally right about the other side, too. If like I don't have Bitcoin available, then a lot of times I'll actually just not spend, uh, you know, if it's something where that would be compelling otherwise. You know, you can now buy Amazon gift cards through Gift and get 3% back on everything you buy from Amazon, including shipping and uh, tax. So I thought that was really, that, that's, that's pretty cool. That's <laughs> cool. Um, I actually have a credit card that gives me 3% back on Amazon, but I still use Gift because it's, it's way easier to pay with Bitcoin. You can actually get more than 3% back by using some of these gift exchanges like Purse.io or Broker. And Purse.io, you can actually get like 15% back. Like, because they let you actually set your own rate. These things were is you create an Amazon list of things that you want to buy with Bitcoin, but you can't buy direct Amazon with Bitcoin. And you publicize your wish list through their network. And someone else comes along, well, I want to buy some Bitcoin. So what they do is they then buy your item off of your wish list and send it to you. And you have paid into the uh, system into the website and it's held in escrow until you receive your item and then you release it. And so basically it allows people to use Bitcoin to buy things on Amazon and set your own discount. So you can say, okay, I want a 20% discount. I want a 15% discount. And if somebody thinks that's um, worth doing, then they're going to buy your item uh, for, for that amount of Bitcoins and you'll basically end up having paid like 10, 15, 20% less for it than you would have paid in dollars. And the reason why this makes sense is specifically because it's hard to acquire Bitcoin, right? That's the core problem that services like that. And BitInstant was exactly the same way. There's this whole giant swath of uh, bridge companies that provide services just like Broker does that allow people to connect with each other because there is no, there is no trusted company that would normally provide it, be providing those services. So that works. You know, I mean, like I'm very much in favor of that type of business model. But at the point that, you know, Amazon starts accepting it, well, that business model's kind of out of luck. You know, I mean, there's just like, there, there are all of these, um, because then there's no reason for somebody, uh, to actually want to pay that premium because there's no friction. So it's like friction causes opportunities in the short to medium term. And in the long term, those opportunities and people taking advantage of them and building services and businesses that actually make money are the types of things that prove the market early. And allow the bigger players to come in and, you know, and eat the little guys, but they do it. Whereas before, had the market not been proven at all, they might not have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the sad thing about a lot of these bridge services that do exactly what you just described, Adam, is that they tend to get some scrutiny because, you know, there are people who don't want people to be able to buy Bitcoins with cash at a 7-Eleven without showing an ID, for instance, like BitInstance business model was. There are people who uh, don't want you to be able to buy Bitcoins with a credit card on service. I mean, I just wonder how long some of these services are, are going to last. I'm kind of surprised that Amazon allows this to go on, you know, where people are using their service as essentially a gift exchange. You know, it's great while it lasts, but we'll see. How do you stop something like that? I mean, the person who's buying a product for somebody else. In order for Amazon to stop that, they would have to prohibit... They'd have to stop their wishlist program. Right. Or they'd have to stop the... Then uh, even the wishlist program, you could host that elsewhere. 
they'd have to stop the ability for someone to buy and ship to a different person. And <laughs> Christmas is coming up. Yeah. As far as I can <laughs> tell, that's half their business. Or they could complain to their bank. I mean, that's, I think, the core thing. Because these are, you know, um, you know, uh, right now it's Broker and there's also Purse.io. But before that, there was Bitspend. And I think there have been a couple of others that have all taken us. Oh, yeah. Spendbitcoins.com or something like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, they, they, this has been done before a couple of times. And the core problem that usually yeah. happens with these companies is their bank account gets shut down. But, but they don't have a bank account. Yeah, purse.io or broker don't don't need a bank account because they're not actually touching any of the money. They're just kind of holding bitcoins in escrow and releasing them when um, the item arrives. Oh, right. No, you're correct. Yeah. So, okay. So then the services that I'm talking about from the earlier swap, those didn't connect people. They actually did the purchasing for you. I knew of somebody who did a service like that. And it was a really small kind of operation where they were actually purchasing stuff for their customers with their personal credit card shipping the stuff and then collecting the bitcoins. So it was basically just a white a way for this person to like buy a lot of bitcoins and run up their credit card. <laughs> so yeah, they would have needed um, some kind of bank account for that. And that's probably why they shut down. And that's now we're seeing the next generation of these kind of services that just connects the buyer and seller directly and doesn't need a bank account. This is a important lesson in the evolution of systems that disintermediate people because this has happened before. Probably the best example is the evolution from Napster to BitTorrent, where hostility towards the earlier model and finding ways to shut down the earlier models, uh, first with Napster, then Knutella, Kazaa, LimeWire, etc. Each one of those shutdown attempts and each one of those attacks made the service more stealthy. It caused, as one service shut down, it caused the successors to learn from those mistakes and essentially evolve. And you have directed evolution under the influence of essentially disruption or counter-disruption by those who are threatened by that business model. And they push these services into becoming stealthier, into becoming harder and harder to shut down. So we've seen now we're seeing that with using shopping sites as intermediaries for purchasing Bitcoin. But it also, I think, and I've said this before, it applies more broadly to cryptocurrencies, which is that in retrospect, Bitcoin will end up being the most mild, the most benign, the least stealthy, the least aggressive disruptor of the cryptocurrencies. And from, from Bitcoin onwards, the evolution will only be to stealthier, more disruptive coins. And the more governments fight it, especially if they fight it on a local level, like Russia trying to shut down a currency, uh, the more likely they are to create local, highly efficient versions to spawn that are resistant to that kind of disruption. Yeah, not just governments either. It's kind of interesting because, Andreas, you drew a parallel to the music file sharing and how it became decentralized, evolving from Napster to some of the Nutella and more decentralized services. A lot of that desire to share music, I think, was in response to just how difficult the record companies had made it, you know, and how just how much of a pain it was to get music, which shouldn't have cost that much and shouldn't have been that painful, but it was a pain point. And so those naturally evolved as a way to solve that problem for people. So a lot of people have blogged about this, and I actually had the same exact problem myself, where if you run anything where you do like Amazon affiliate links, 
And you have multiple affiliate links for different Amazon countries. So like, let's say you have an affiliate link for Amazon US, UK and Canada, you end up with Amazon credit from Amazon US, Amazon UK and Amazon Canada. But if you only live in if you only live in one of those countries, then you can't spend the Amazon credit in those other countries because you can't ship stuff from Amazon Canada to UK or Canada to the US and stuff like that. They really kind of segregate those areas. And so if you have this affiliate credit, there's nothing to do with it. Like you really can't do much with it except kind of sit on it until servicespurse.io came about. People have tried to post on the internet and say, hey, what, what do I do with this credit? Like there's nothing, you can't use it to buy a gift card. You can't use like Amazon UK credit to buy a gift card to Amazon US or vice versa. There's no way to convert it. And so you end up with nothing until you're able to convert it to Bitcoin. (laughs) Essentially, it creates a secondary market for the trading of affiliate credit via Bitcoin. Yes. And, And this happens in every area where you have market forces that are trying to distort the market, whether it's music companies trying to extract ridiculous margins while offering inferior customer service once mp3 came out whether it's the banking system you know and the fact that cryptocurrencies appeal to a lot of people because the banking system uh, treats customers appallingly creates enormous barriers for international trade has practices that are uh, simultaneously abhorrent and idiotic that pushes people to use cryptocurrencies. And then if the banks try to fight those cryptocurrencies, either themselves directly or through governments, what they do is they cause the cryptocurrencies to evolve to become bank resistant and government resistant rather than achieving any goal. In the end, the music industry learned this lesson and they found that the uh, suing everybody through the RIAA or uh, their affiliates was far less effective than working with Apple and iTunes to give people easier access to music. And now people are spending a lot more on music than they were, because if it's convenient and you can just one click buy it off iTunes, then you won't even go to the bother of of downloading it on a torrent. So people find that people will spend money on things. They will buy things that are convenient, even free things. Yeah. And if anybody doubts that, I have one word for you, and that's Evian. <laughs> Pretty much the same stuff that comes out of my tap in most con- in most cities. In fact, the tap water is better than the bottle water. Not just and, Evian, uh, just and people will pay two. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. Read the label on the back when it says municipal source. That means tap water. Um, and so you're paying two dollars to have it encased in plastic, but effectively, it's the same thing. People will pay for convenience even when the underlying product is free. And and they'll go through a lot of hassle to get that service or, or product if what you're offering them is vastly inferior, as is the case with banking or was the case with the music industry. It strikes me that one of the things about cryptocurrency or just, I mean, these platforms in general is that the secondary market is kind of unavoidable. So, I mean, like that's useful in a lot of circumstances because there are lots and lots of things in this world that should have secondary markets, should have the ability for, if I have an appointment at the doctor's and I prepay it and I want to sell that appointment to somebody else, why can't I do that? Why do I have to pay the full fee and then that slot gets used by someone else, but I still had to, had to pay the fee? If I find, I mean, like, so, so the, the idea of adding a secondary market to just all kinds of things 
is, I think, a very interesting thing that is kind of made inevitable by cryptocurrency. In a free market, there's no such thing as a secondary market. The only difference between the primary and the secondary market is that the primary one is quote, authorized, and the secondary one is, quote, unauthorized. And the concept of authorizing or unauthorizing a market only exists if you don't have free markets. Well, but that that's not necessarily true, because like in the case of a doctor's appointment, for example, hypothetically, it's not just like anybody can set the rules of when a doctor's visit can be. There's actually someone who is in charge of dictating what the availability is for that sort of thing. So, right? So, that, that would be the primary market. And then if I, as someone who acquired it from the primary, wanted to sell it on, you know, or scalp tickets or whatever, that's the secondary market. I don't think it's necessarily about whether it's okay or not. I think it's just about what step in the process are you acquiring? It? Oh, I see what you mean. You're, you're talking about reselling something rather than selling it the first time. Right. You notice that in, you notice that in many cases, the, the mere concept of reselling something is de facto illegal or unauthorized because of restrictions placed by the primary market. Right, exactly. So whether or not there are restrictions placed by the primary market, if what you're talking about is a crypto token, given the current technology environment that we live in, you kind of can't restrict people from doing whatever they want, right? I mean, like you can stop the blockchain from being mined, you can shut down whatever the you know transaction processing mechanism, and that might stop everybody, but you can't stop individually. Yeah, no, you can't. I mean, you couldn't stop it before. Like, you couldn't stop someone from subleasing their apartment, for instance, before internet or before whatever. They would take out a classified ad. But now it's just being made easier to get around those restrictions because now we have Airbnb, for instance. Maybe we'll have some kind of token that corresponds to an apartment complex where people can use that to sublet their apartment. It's a matter of scalability and efficiency. The difference is that now you can do that in a scalable and efficient way, whereas before you couldn't. And the same thing applies to cryptocurrencies. I mean, ledger-based currencies or ledger-based trade systems have existed for thousands of years. Before Bitcoin, there was Hawala, an informal ledger-based, cash-based networks of acquaintance that, that cross continents and, and, and cross the globe where you could transfer money internationally through these networks. The problem is you could only transfer very, very small amounts. You could only do so informally, and it had large inefficiencies. Bitcoin doesn't do anything new. It just takes that same concept and takes it to scale. You could do Airbnb before by calling a whole bunch of people in the city of destination until you find someone who's willing to let you sleep on their couch. Now you can just do it at scale and efficiently and with nice perks around it. Same thing for Lyft or Uber or any of these other sharing economy things. Really, it's about scalability and efficiency. So the non-monetary uses of tokens, I think, are, this is kind of going to be, next year probably more so, um, this year we're kind of focused on platforms, it seems like that. Everyone's trying to figure out how to get the platforms right. But the non-monetary uses of tokens uh, in 2015, I think, are going to be a really big theme. One of the things that I've been thinking about is, while the features that something like Bitcoin has built into it are good for money, if we were talking about creating token systems that just are better generally than the alternative systems that are out there, there are some situations where you actually want features that are different than Bitcoin. And I mean, this, this, uh, we can tie this into the, the bit license conversation because I've talked about this before. If you're going to have a bit license and the reporting requirement is so onerous that you basically are going to have to fundamentally change how Bitcoin is in order to use it and build entirely new systems, you know, designed around associating metadata with all these things. 
why not instead just create a coin that has all of these things built in as features so that then you, uh, nobody has to do that work. It's just something that's already reported. And yes, of course, it's less good than Bitcoin from our perspective. And yes, of course, it adds in lots of things that Bitcoin, frankly, solves. It, it, it uh, unsolves a, a variety of problems that we think Bitcoin has solved. But yet it would be usable in a legally compliant fashion in areas that otherwise cryptocurrency might not be. Basically, Fedcoin. Fedcoin, sure. I mean, Fedcoin is one of them. You might have even different Fedcoins. New York coin, you know, Fed, Fedcoin. It's going to happen eventually. You are going to see government coins that are going to be less less decentralized and less anonymous. And the, the end result is that some small niche markets are probably going to end up using those coins. I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because what it does is it establishes digital cryptocurrencies as uh, something that people get used to. And then they can make choices. Because once you are in a digital cryptocurrency realm, it's relatively easy through these secondary markets we've just been discussing to move around from token to token, whether that's moving from, um, say, a resource coin that you acquired by sharing your bandwidth or sharing your couch space or uh, giving uh, rides in your car. Uh, and, and got a resource coin that you exchange for Bitcoin or because you want to convert Fedcoin to Bitcoin in order to move it to another country because you can't move the Fedcoin. It's, it's much easier than dollars. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to spend Bitcoins right from your browser. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is also brought to you by FoldingCoin. Folding at Home is a long-running project from the folks at Stanford University that basically enlists your spare CPU or GPU power to simulate complex protein folding. The results of all this distributed computation are tabulated and analyzed. They help new medicines and cures be derived for some of the most vexing diseases faced by man. But there's a problem. There's no reward for sharing your computer cycles in this way. You can join a team and you can earn points, but there can be no profit motive in helping research. So here's where FoldingCoin comes in. It's what I call a cause coin. FoldingCoin is a token built on counterparty, created on a schedule, publicly set in advance, and distributed to those who join the FoldingCoin folding team, based on their individual contribution to that team's effort. FoldingCoin can't be redeemed right now, and it's only beyond counterparty utility as it can be used to tip at participating meetups, so its market value right now is dubious, but I think about it another way. If protein folding is something that people find valuable, and the only way you can get folding coin is by provably folding proteins, then even someone who doesn't want to contribute computational cycles, but does want to support protein folding, can accomplish this simply with money, by purchasing and holding some of the folding coin tokens. So if people like the cause or think it's important, now they have a really easy way to support the project's ecosystem at a meta level. And individual folders can choose between whether they think there's more support now, and thus a higher demand for the token, or if they think that that'll be more true at some point in the future. Interested? Confused? Visit foldingcoin.net to learn more. 
There's only one sponsor today, but while I've got your attention, if you've got an iPhone, head over to the App Store and grab your free copy of the Let's Talk Bitcoin network application. This is the second version we've released, and I'm pretty thrilled with it. The first version had positive feedback, but it didn't save your place in the current podcast you're listening to. You had limited ability to download specific episodes, so you had to stay online sometimes. Didn't have the option to autoplay new episodes, you couldn't play episodes at 2x speed, and you couldn't move around within an episode. All those things now have been fixed. In addition, you can now log in with your LTB account to comment on a specific episode or article, and actually you can enter the magic words while listening to the episode. If you haven't yet taken a look, this is all wrapped up in a very intuitive drag and flip interface. We hope you enjoy it and would love feedback on how the next version can be better. To those of you with Android devices, now that we've got the iOS device to a place I'm happy with, we'll be building that side of it out with the lessons learned here. To get your free copy now, visit the iOS App Store and search for Let's Talk Bitcoin. It's released under our developer's account, Marcin Roberski, so don't worry about it being the wrong one. Interestingly, we've just seen these couple of reports come out from, there was one from the Boston Federal Reserve, and there was one from, I think it was like the Central Bank, oh, the Bank of England. The Bank of England. So they both said in their reports some interesting things. Like they they said, basically, it sounded like they kind of got the concept of cryptocurrency, making it easier to do a lot of things like communicate, basically solving the Byzantine generals problem, you know, how do you communicate in a difficult environment in real time? And also the advantages of blockchain technology for like timestamping and um, keeping a distributed ledger. And they both sort of recognized the value of that. And I mean, they didn't want to go like completely positive on cryptocurrencies. They were like, yeah, they still have risks and problems and challenges. But, you know, we can basically use these technologies to uh, our advantage. So it's kind of interesting to see that they sort of got it, at least pieces of it. They got about 5% of the vision <laughs> of, of what those of us who are in this space have understood now for a while. But it's, it's really is such a tiny subset. It was like, this could be useful. Um, yeah, it's going to rock your world. But I guess useful is a word you could use. You can't expect someone to, to recognize something that then fundamentally renders their job obsolete is the terribly misquoted version of that. Right. The, yeah, the likelihood that someone will understand something depends on uh, how tight it is. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do it better than you, Adam. <laughs> There's going to be lots of talk. There's so much talk. I brought this up because um, the Fed coin is one of them, certainly. I think that that's something that inevitably we'll see because it's just more efficient. You know, Andreas, the 5% that they've identified is the 5% that is most helpful to exactly. them in their current, you know, viewpoint. Right, exactly. So I mean, like, how, we, we, we can't expect anything different from that. Um, the question is, outside of government, what are the people, what are the groups that have been empowered by this or that are going to be empowered by this that weren't before? And I mean, like, I'm really enamored with this idea of, of, different types of characteristics that could be applied to cryptocurrency. So what if we, uh, like, I have a token that I possess, and I can give it to somebody on a rental term, right? And then when, you know, we agree on the term, uh, the person can look at the blockchain and see that this is the term when they get the confirmation, they, you know, sign it, and then I'm paid. And then after that amount of time, it automatically returns to me. I mean, like adding a feature like that would let you do an incredible amount of things that are totally, you know, non-feasible with cryptocurrency right now because that doesn't exist. Yeah, those, those, we, we've still barely scratched the surface. 
the main message that I've been trying to hammer on for a while now is the idea that this is currency is just the first half, that this is the internet of money, but it, it allows you to do source allocation and transaction between individuals. And to be able to allocate and trade uh, resources between individuals in a completely decentralized, distributed, and global way. Currency is the obvious application, but currency is just barely the tip of the iceberg. Because once you can do all of these things, it redefines currency, it redefines trade, it redefines commerce, and it allows us to do all kinds of things that we haven't even thought of before. Just like thinking of the internet simply as a better fax machine misses the point radically. And that is the reality of where any disruptive technology is at first. In the first few years of the internet, people did radically miss the point and thought about all the ways that fax machines would be revolutionized by this new technology. You know, how the existing concepts of faxing would be done better and faster and more efficiently. And that, again, was missing the point. So what's the non sequitur that comes along now? I mean, like... The non sequitur is simple. The non sequitur is simple. If you think that Bitcoin is Visa, only better or cheaper, uh, if you think Bitcoin is just a payment network for shopping in the first world, you are radically missing the point. It's not about shopping in the first world. It's about everything else, everywhere else. It's not about the currency. It's certainly not about the narrow aspect of the currency, which is the payment network. And it's not a replacement for PayPal. And, and if that's what you think about Bitcoin, you've missed the point. This is a programmable open network for the decentralized uh, trading of resources and allocation of resources. And that is huge. And it affects a hell of a lot more than just how you do shopping, which again, you can see that people are missing the point because the biggest news is so-and-so retailer now takes Bitcoin. That really doesn't matter so much in the long run. But I think that the long run, you know, it's really tempting to take that perspective because it sort of pushes off the the getting there, you know, to the now. And we don't really, you know, care about that because the now isn't what's important. It's the long term that's important. But I think that that's like, you know, we've we talk a lot about um, about, uh, you know, Bitcoin in Africa and, th and things like that. And we recently had an episode, not too recently, with Richard Bose. Stephanie, you interviewed him. And yeah, he had a he very had a hard, hard time, time and, unexpectedly. And one of the things that struck me about that we're not there yet. We probably, you know, I think that you're right. I think that all of the impacts that we believe this can happen to people who are unbanked and all those things, that absolutely will happen, but we're not there yet. And pretending like we are kind of misses the point. The point is that these early things, you know, yes, Bitcoin might not be about money, but right now that's the use that people can actually wrap their heads around. And just like the price doesn't matter, well, the price does matter. It just doesn't matter to us. And so what we're doing here isn't trying to, you know, please ourselves and create the best system that only we will ever use. We're trying to help create something that is much bigger than we are. I think what you're saying is those are all steps along the way. Like every big merchant or whatever that adopts Bitcoin, we might see that and think, oh, ho-hum, yeah, whatever, Dell, Dish Network are accepting Bitcoin. That's great, but it's not about shopping. But I think you're right, Adam, that the, it's a step along the way to getting to what, what it is about. And like, you know, that had to happen in the internet where different, you know, companies started making websites and AOL came out and people started getting email addresses. And then suddenly your grandma had an email address. And so it's a step along the way. 
Yeah, and we need all of these steps to get there. It's it's not going. We're not going to see Bitcoin used broadly in in you know for the other six billion in the developing world for a decade, um, possibly more. And it's going to take a long time to do that. And every single retailer like Overstock that start taking Bitcoin as a payment mechanism help us help move us in that direction. The, the point I'm trying to make is not that these things don't matter. They absolutely do matter. It's just that that's not the end of it. And, and don't for a moment think that that's all there is to it or that the primary goal here is to replace PayPal or Visa. Um, because that's a very, very narrow vision that doesn't really show understanding of what Bitcoin is in the broader sense. But it's inevitable, though. I mean, that's the thing that I come back to is that like Overstock, it, so we, before before we started recording, we we're talking about how Overstock is kind of this early adopter, not because it was amazingly, amazingly early, but because relative to its size and what it can use Bitcoin for and what it can do for Bitcoin, it is a new category, a new class of player, right? So I think that this is just the dilutive process. You know, as this thing grows, it's going to continue to spread out, which is why it's important and it's neutral. But neutrality also means being okay with people thinking that it's just a better PayPal because for their purposes, that's oh, yeah, all absolutely. it is. This dilution process is healthy and normal. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that you're saying that the steps aren't important. I'm saying that I've personally been really, really tempted and have for a long time, for long periods of time, not cared about any of the now stuff because I've been so focused on the future stuff. And what has been demonstrated to me is that while there is a great deal of redundancy going on, there are a great many people who are trying to solve these problems. A lot of the problems still aren't necessarily being solved because a lot of people are taking that, that approach. It's easier to focus on the long term. So that, that interim stuff, you know, I'm not saying go work for PayPal or do anything like that. I'm just saying that to people out there who are doing that, thank you very much because it enables people like me to not necessarily care about it. Not only does it matter, but that it's almost more important than the stuff that comes later because the stuff that comes later only ever happens if the stuff happens now. Well, I, I would disagree with that last thing just because I think that in adopting a currency in the developing world and using banking infrastructure that is much lower cost to deploy and can be deployed with a lot less infrastructure. Uh, people who need that will deploy it and they'll deploy it whether it's been successful for shopping here or not. It might not be Bitcoin though, but they will end up deploying some kind of cryptocurrency even if the, it takes the, the local banks in the developing world doing that in order to extend their services because they are interested in doing that. I've had discussions with several banks from the developing nations that are interested in using Bitcoin to extend the reach of their own banking services. But I don't think that that's dependent upon developing the shopping network of Bitcoin, but I hear your point. I mean, all of those things are very important. It's going to be a multi-step effort that's going to take decades to, to happen. And every single step now really, really matters for the future. I just mean that the stuff matters, right? Like the somebody doing stuff matters. I'm again, I'm not also necessarily talking about the banking system or any of these other th specific things. It's just that however people find it useful, whatever the particular aspect of it that they think is relevant, you know, the banking system in the third world certainly would have a much better time with it if there were more things that it could do, if there were more subsidiary applications and open source projects 
and all these other things that add additional layers of service on top or additional things that it can do. Lighthouse is a fantastic example of this. I don't know if you guys just saw, but, um, or saw, but, uh, Mike Kern, I think last week released, uh, the alpha version of the Lighthouse platform, which is essentially a Bitcoin wallet that has crowdfunding features built into it. And that doesn't do any, it doesn't have any servers or anything like that. It uses actual features within the Bitcoin protocol in order to do this kind of like, uh, just like Kickstarter, you make a pledge, but you can revoke your pledge if, uh, before it funds. So, I mean, like stuff like that, you know, that's, that's about money. That's about crowdfunding. That's a useful tool layer that wouldn't necessarily exist if the focus was, uh, I don't know. I'm just saying, you, you get where I'm going? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely great to see all these developments. That's another aspect I think that the price decline may be obscuring is all of the incredible news. Like if a third of this stuff had happened last year, we would be having Bitcoin parties about it. And I think it would have gotten even more attention. Um, in the early days, every single new retailer that adopted Bitcoin had an impact on the price and caused a great deal of excitement in the community. And now we see major, major retailers, major customer of consumer focused uh, companies adopting Bitcoin, major announcements by, um, by governments, by large uh, companies, by startups, by individual projects, new innovations, all of this stuff happening. And yet the reaction seems almost muted. It almost seems that people have gotten used to seeing giant retailer adopting Bitcoin every week, and it's less exciting than it used to be, and the price certainly now seems immune to those things. Well, the earned, you know, the earned press phenomenon is not a lasting one. It's one of those things where when you are an early adopter into a disruptive technology, that's like one of the primary reasons why a lot of the early, um, a lot of the early merchants came on was because they got a lot of attention, whereas now, you know, now that we've had hundreds of uh, merchants, or more than that, I imagine, um, it's the, the, the impact is certainly muted. Yeah, but it's also muted within the community and in terms of exciting news or even affecting the price. We're becoming so used to Bitcoin's sustained momentum and development and uh, increasing adoption that we almost feel like it's not being adopted as much as it is. We've seen some crazy announcements in the last month. They don't even seem to stir people's passions as much. I think that's interesting to note, at least. Expectation management. <laughs> that would be my prescription here is it's interesting because the run up to, you know, to over a thousand, right? That happened because new people were getting in broadly. There were certainly some people who were continuing to buy at those prices who had been in at under a hundred dollars, but I suspect most of them were new. So you just have different layers of cost basis um, yeah. at work yep. here as well. That's an important thing. A lot of the people who came in November last year. Um, have seen nothing but bad news on the price side for Bitcoin for the last year. Right. And that can be very traumatizing. Good news or bad news. The, the, one, this is another thing, of course, is that like if you, if you look back at where the rally started for Bitcoin back in October, it was not on the back of good news. It was on the back of what was perceived as terrible news. So maybe, you know, again, we're just, we're in this inverse mode where good news is not really important. And bad news is something to buy against because you're expecting the price to go down. I mean, like, it seems like, again, because there are so many participants in this space that are really market oriented, everyone's trying to second guess each other, right? But I mean, the question is, is the money really there? That's, that's what's happening. If the price is going down, it means that people are selling more Bitcoin and extracting dollars more so than people want to come in. 
So while that news might be making a difference to us, it seems like the impact won't be felt by actual users who might bring real value into the ecosystem until sometime later. But I think it's all, yeah, I mean, it's been interesting, certainly, watching the price drift down as we've had this fantastic month of news. I like to focus on what I see as the most interesting activity in the space, which is, again, the startups. So the amount of activity that's happening, the number of startups that are working on cryptocurrency-related projects, the number of developers that are working on cryptocurrency-related projects, the number of people being hired with jobs being created in that industry um, has exploded since last year. I would estimate that we're looking at probably 50 times larger industry than we had a year ago. And that industry is focused directly on innovations and delivering solutions to consumers, delivering business-to-business solutions around cryptocurrencies, developing new protocols, developing new products, developing new financial services instruments, all of those things that are happening. Those were simply not happening last year. Well, they were. They were just different projects. Not, not to the extent that they're happening now. I mean, it's a, it's the industry is is in in my estimate fifty times larger than it was just a year ago, and that it, not only has there been a huge influx of capital, but there's also been a huge influx of of new people working on these projects and a, a huge influx of developers who may not be working on Bitcoin Core but are working on thousands of little projects related to cryptocurrencies. Yeah, and a lot of those companies are going to fail, as we've said before, but some of them are going to succeed and maybe succeed really big. In fact, I just heard a podcast with uh, Tim Draper, who's the guy who uh, bought a lot of the uh, Silk Road Bitcoins, and he was the one who proposed splitting up California into six pieces. And he said that he really thinks that right now, there are all these Bitcoin startups working on these solutions to bring you know, Bitcoin into the mainstream and to make it easier to use. They're all just incubating right now and developing. But it, within the next year or two, they're going to come to fruition with all the stuff that they're working on. And then that's when we're really going to see the explosion of Bitcoin, the, the price increase and the adoption massively increase when, when these bridge companies and solutions are ready. I don't really necessarily think that a price increase is necessary in order to have success in, in Bitcoin yep. because Bitcoin works just as well at 30 as it does at 400 as it does at a thousand that's true but, do, but could you deny for though, many that, of like, the people who bought it could you deny though that like it's true that bitcoin just works just as fine as a penny as it does at a thousand dollars but it does bring people in like when bitcoin price goes up there's a lot of media coverage and it lets people find out about it who wouldn't have found out about it otherwise yeah yeah not just that but the people who came in during that price run up in November of last year, and now expressing a lot of disappointment and feeling a lot of disappointment uh, when the price goes down. So it cuts both ways. It not only brings new excitement into the space, but then when the price declines, that leads to disappointment. So it's, it's certainly tugging on everybody's emotions. I'd like to see more stable Bitcoin pricing rather than a big run up followed by a big drop, followed by a big run-up, followed by a big drop, because that's giving us all emotional whiplash. But, you know, I don't think stable Bitcoin pricing is going to be in our immediate future. I think volatility in Bitcoin is going to be here uh, for quite a while as this industry matures and the market matures. It's still tiny in comparison to serving and could serve. 
It is volatile, but I think what it does is it acts as a beacon. And so, you know, the the startups that you're talking about, it's been interesting because there has been actually quite a bit of turn. A lot of startups have uh, sold assets in the last, I don't know, two or three months that uh, that got started last year. Again, like it gets back to the, those are people who might not have come into the ecosystem if the price hadn't acted as that signal that now was the time to get involved. And what happens is that all it has to do is be high enough, long enough for them to invest their time and their money. What happened in this particular circumstance is I think a lot of people have started startups, you know, that, that were going before the price really hit the point where maybe they wouldn't have bothered. But because they're already in it, because they're already working on it, well, that product's probably going to come out unless they're just willing to, to take everything as a loss to this point. So that's, I think, part of this cycle is that you get this big rush of excitement, which then gives a big rush of money. And then people get discouraged because they just spent all this money, but there's nothing new for them to see. But the companies that are building this stuff, they're still out there building it. And a lot of them are going to fail, as has been mentioned, but some of them will succeed. But that's why I think price does matter. And it's good that it spikes up is because when it does spike up, it takes people who are opportunistic and looking for the most effective way to spend their time. And they retarget and recalibrate towards cryptocurrency because it's an opportunity. So, I mean, again, like it just depends on who you're talking to or, or when it comes to does the price matter or not. It's a balance between how much do you get the concept versus how opportunistic are you? And over time, I think a lot of the opportunism shifts to getting the concept. Well, there's also a lot of people who are so invested in Bitcoin, and I'm not just talking about invested in money, although there's a lot of that too, but who now have invested oh, yeah. their jobs, who have invested their companies, who have invested their mental time and focus into this currency, who have been involved in this community for a long time, and who quite honestly won't give up, no matter where the price drops. I'm, I'm going to be in Bitcoin at $1, and will stay in Bitcoin at $1 and would not be looking to exit from Bitcoin. I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. So maybe it's just my cost basis is lower, uh, but it's, it's also the fact that I, I, along with many others, have invested now in this space for years and are very interested in seeing where the cryptocurrency thing is going and truly believe in the underlying premise and the underlying architecture and technology. And, you know, even despite the bad news, I'm not going anywhere. So that's one of the other reasons why I think Bitcoin now has staying power is because it's developed a very large community of very committed people who will stay with Bitcoin and try to see this project through despite the ups and downs. And they won't give up so easily. So we'll see many more obituaries written for Bitcoin and we can add them to the pile. This morning, someone was tweeting, Based on the latest price decline, Bitcoin RIP. Uh, and I laughed because, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's such a recurring theme of uh, premature uh, obituaries for Bitcoin. I miss it, to be <laughs> honest. It hasn't been happening as much uh, quite this, you know, this summer, there haven't been too many of them. But yeah, you know, I mean, the, the people being invested in Bitcoin, you know, it's funny because I don't know how, I mean, like when I say invested, I mean like 100% all in must succeed or my life is, you know, not what I thought it was. That's good, I guess. But it also has, you know, I mean, like there are some dangerous parts about that too. And I see a lot of people who are really, really, really ideologically well, committed yeah. to this. Did you guys see the suicide thing that went around or Jason King was saying that basically people had contacted him saying they were considering suicide? Bitcoin world. 
Uh, no, I actually hadn't seen that. When did that happen? Uh, a couple weeks ago, he posted it on Reddit. But I mean, I totally believe that. And Andreas, I brought that up with Andreas and bankers are, you know, offing themselves quite often, too. So there's that. We'll take Bitcoin really well, it's a, seriously. It's a terrible th- of course they are. And if you're feeling that, then you should reach out for um, for help and, and talk to someone who can help you because it's absolutely not worth it for Bitcoin or for any other financial thing to be considering suicide or to be severely depressed over that. By the way, if you are very depressed about the price of Bitcoin and where it is today and you are considering suicide, the National Suicide Prevention Helpline is 1-800-273-8255. Uh, so might as well put that out on the air there, and you can find someone who will listen. You can call someone for help. I think people can get obsessed and can get involved in many different spaces and be obsessive about it. Yes. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, Bitcoin is probably a relatively benign obsession and one that is less likely to lead to bad things happening in the world at large. Um, I, I don't think that's a very what, big though? problem. What are you thinking of when you say it's a benign obsession? <laughs> well, there are a lot of people who are very much uh, invested, their entire livelihoods and professional careers and um, their every aspect of their life in fracking for oil. Um, and dis- which um, destroys the environment, uh, both uh, you know in the front end with polluting the water table and in the back end by polluting the air. So uh, you know that's uh, that's an obsession that's not only unhealthy for the individual, but is actually damaging for the rest of society. And there are plenty of people who are either invested in that deliberately because they want to be invested in that, or their lives are tied up in that because it's the only source of employment in their town or the only source uh, of income for their area of land that they're leasing out to one of these companies. And they're very affected by the price of oil every time it goes up and down, the after effects of this activity. Uh, Compared to that, Bitcoin's relatively benign, is what I'm saying. There are a lot of people whose life and career and expertise is in designing nuclear weapons or cluster bombs or drone warfare or whatever. Um, I would say again, Bitcoin is empowering it and it's benign. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, that's no, all that I'm saying. People people don't necessarily choose and and some people choose those types of careers but uh, a lot of people don't. So a lot of people simply don't have a choice. They get involved in things like that because that's the only employment they have in their area. And you know, they're very affected by the ups and downs of those industries. So there's always something Yeah, I'm the sure. reason I asked you about that Andreas was because I was kind of thinking about it, uh, or I was framing it as like a community thing. Like, you know, some people join cults or just join different communities because they don't ever really feel like they fit in anywhere in their lives. And then they kind of walk into a group of people that have shared interests with them or are into similar things, or they have stuff in common with, and they can relate to them. And they think, oh, yeah, this is my tribe. You know, I found it. This is my community. And then sometimes they can get disillusioned with the community because it's just not what they once thought it was. And I think maybe Bitcoin was like that at one point. It was more of a smaller community where you could kind of know people and maybe people felt that sense of acceptance 
if they were into cryptography or into... It was niche. I mean, I think that's the core of what you're saying. It was niche. It was small. And because it was small, you have the ability to have these more intimate relationships with other people who you might not yeah. otherwise know than you do in an environment that has 10 times that many people, for example. I think we're still perfectly capable of having that small community feel. Um, as long as the vast majority of people you tell that you're involved in Bitcoin look at you like you have two heads and uh, wonder but whether perhaps you're involved want. in drug that's dealing. That's what some people get out of it. We're still a small community. Like, <laughs> we'll remain a small community. But exactly, that's a good thing. As soon as they stop looking at you like that and, and you start hearing your taxi driver saying that you really should be investing in these Bitcoin stocks because it's the new hot thing, then you know we've gone mainstream. But until then, I think we're still very, very niche enough. Um, people still look at me like I have two heads when I ask them if they take the coin. I feel like it's sort of at this in-between phase. Like I came into the Bitcoin community when it was very much like a libertarian thing and because I was a libertarian first. It doesn't really feel like that anymore. And that's fine. That's just how it's growing. And what's going on is more people uh, come in. But there definitely are people out there who get something out of it. Like they get a psychological payoff when they're part of a group that's maybe a little bit persecuted or not very well known, you know, <laughs> like they're into something before everybody else knows about it before it's cool. I'm totally guilty of this. I mean, like, I'm, I'm not, uh, please, no judgment here. Underdogs are us, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The contrarians, the people who, uh, you know, want to get on the thing before everybody else finds out about it. I like this band before you even knew it was cool or, <laughs> or whatever. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like Bitcoin is sort of at this in-between phase. It's not mainstream yet where your taxi driver is telling you, you got to invest in these Bitcoin stocks. And it's not this tiny community where everybody knows everybody else by name. It's in between those two. It's going towards the mainstream, but it's not quite there yet, but it's sort of less niche than it was in the past. So let me take a different angle on this. Um, so community in general, like if we were part of a community in real life and there was a place, you know, that we would uh, town hall or something where we would go and meet and talk about things or be able to conduct commerce and stuff like that, we could basically do anything that we wanted because we have proximity and we have the ability to conduct business with each other if by no other means than simply hand to hand. So you look at the internet and the internet took away the downside of geography, right? The internet, you know, in order to participate in all those things, the one downside at the, at your village is that you have to actually be there. You have to actually, you know, be there. You have to be able to have the money in your hand and take money from somebody else or sign a contract. And so it's hard. So when we move to the internet, the communities that have been built here can do only two things. You can interact with the platform. So this is the equivalent of you can go to the town hall and look around at the things that are there or read articles posted on the bulletin board or whatever. And you can talk to people, right? But those are the only two things that you can do. And what happens when you add Bitcoin back into that equation is that every community that's on the internet suddenly is just as functional as any community that's in real life. So if you want to do crowdfunding, you don't have to go to a crowdfunding platform anymore. You just go to your community, the where whatever community you want, and it can do the crowdfunding for you because it's not handling the money. It's just, you know, uh, helping you format your transactions in such a way so that it, it, you know, uh, uses the correct features. So, I mean, like that's, I think a, a really interesting thing is that you're saying the community is getting too big. Andrea, uh, both of you are saying that the community is getting bigger. Stephanie, no, you're I'm saying, not saying it's getting too big. I'm not, I'm not saying well, it's, it's getting bigger than it was. Well, it's getting bigger than you would comfortably have it. I'm not saying I was comfortable one way or another. I'm just saying, I'm just observing that it is getting bigger. 
Okay, well, Stephanie, am I am I incorrect in saying that it would be your preference if you could have a community that was more libertarian oriented, that was you know, and more focused on the core values of Bitcoin than the one that we are moving into? Just given the option in a vacuum. Well, I have that. I mean, I just choose who I am friends with, basically. But so I no, I don't need that. I don't need that for the Bitcoin as a whole. I, I think we're approaching the Groucho Marx. So I won't be part of any club that has me as a member. <laughs> So if if <laughs> if this gets broad enough to accept all of the popular people, I'm leaving. Yep. Well, one of the things you said, Adam, is interesting because the internet made geography obsolete. I think that's true to a certain extent. But I also look at Bitcoin, and one of the very interesting developments in 2013 was the fact that the community became large enough for local meetups to be able to start happening. So before 2013, if you wanted to meet other Bitcoiners, you had to meet them online because there weren't any around you, unless you lived in one of maybe three or four very, very large cities that had an established community, and then you could get together once a month in a tiny space. Now you can find Bitcoin meetup groups uh, and local community where you can interact face-to-face with other Bitcoiners in pretty much any medium to large city around the world. And in some of those cities, those meetup groups are new and they have a dozen people. In some of those cities, those meetup groups are huge. They have in excess of a thousand people and are beginning to splinter and specialize in San Francisco. The developers meetup group that I started is already exceeding 500 developers, and that's a niche group. The the other groups have already exceeded a thousand. I believe the London meetup group exceeded 1,200 this year already. Um, and yet, you can go to some of the really really small cities that have you know less than 50,000 population, and you can still find a meetup group with a dozen people to meet up and do Bitcoin. So what's interesting about this community is that we reached a level of saturation where local meetups became possible. And that was new. That happened in 2013. And I think it's accelerating now. Well, it's that viral process, right? I mean, it's like uh, the thing that you don't want to do when you are, if, if, you're, if you were a virus trying to infect the world, the thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to expand too fast because you become too much of a threat too quickly. The thing that you want to do, ideally, is get a lot of spread, a lot of distribution, and then at some point mutate and become a, a really viral strain. And then, well, then you've won the game, basically. So it's basically the same thing here. Well, I found that um, if I feel uncomfortable in some of the larger communities, and I can honestly tell you that I don't hang out on the Reddit Bitcoin group anymore because of how trollish all of that is, I still feel very, very comfortable and enjoy much more now having the smaller, more intimate meetings that come with local meetups. So I try to do a lot more of those and a lot less of interaction on, you know, giant forums that have 150,000 uh, people on them. Uh, and out of the 150,000 people, you have, you know, 5,000 trolls. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Adam Levine. Music was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Today's magic word, mixing it up a little bit at the request of some people, is pop. 
That's P O P POP. You've got until the 3rd of October to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter your magic word and secure your share of the listener rewards. See you next time.